Um, we're back in our summer series um, going through the book of Romans. Uh, and as we're, uh, we're kind of using the tabernacle in the wilderness as our outline for this book, um, we've been moving, uh, and we will be moving today a step deeper into the tabernacle um, today. We're going to step away from the altar. Um, we, we talked how the tabernacle starts at the door where you confess your sins um, and they would lay hands on an animal and, uh, and declare themselves to be a sinner. And then you would come in and you would sacrifice your animal at the altar. Um, and today we're moving away from that altar to the next step in the tabernacle, which is the labor, the cleanup process. Um, the, the labor was this huge wasp basin. I mean, it kind of informs a lot of what goes on in the New Testament. A lot of things we hear in the New Testament that seem to kind of come out of nowhere, they're all kind of informed by this labor. Because sacrificing animals is dirty work. Um, blood, dust, dirt, everything. It's, it's, a, it's messy work. And so this gave the priests an opportunity to clean up after all of that blood and ash and grossness got on them from doing the work at the altar. Um, but the basin was also um, what they did, where they did their ceremonial cleaning. We hear about this a lot. They would do the ceremonial cleansing. Originally that happened in the labor. Um, they would come in. If you got ceremonial unclean, you'd offer like a really um, small sacrifice, a dove or something. And you'd, you'd clean in the labor as like the ceremonial sign that, that you've been cleansed. Um, and so in the New Testament, we hear about this a lot, where they're talking about the ceremonial cleansing and the religious leaders got onto Jesus. You know, how come your, your disciples don't cleanse as much as everybody else does? Um, and the root of that theology is right here in the labor. Um, in fact, this labor... Um, as the Jews went into captivity and they no longer had a temple, which is where the labor was, they had to come up with new ways of, of continuing the ceremonial um, cleansing. And so some of the, this is one of the earliest forms of a, um, what they call mikvah, which was where Jews did ceremonial cleansing, um, what they would call baptisms. Actually, you would get dunked as a sign of cleansing. Um, and, uh, and that's one that would be in any synagogue today. They still have them in every synagogue. Um, and so, ironically, um, the, uh, the pool of Siloam, where, where the guy was crippled and he couldn't get in, he was like, an angel would stir the water. That was most likely a mikvah. That wasn't just like a natural pond. It was most likely a mikvah. And when they would see the water get stirred, somebody would get in and get healed. And this guy couldn't get in because other people were beating him to it. Um, it was most likely um, a mikvah, like that one on the left. But uh, baptism in the first century Israel was fairly common, and it all stemmed from the labor. Um, so John the Baptist, when he was baptizing in the Jordan, the weird thing wasn't that he was baptizing. That was actually fairly normal. The weird thing is that, that he was doing it in a river outside of the establishment, not in a mikvah where you had to pay something to get in and all that stuff that the Jewish establishment had built, built in around it. So the reason everything was weird was that he was in the river, not that he was just baptizing in general. Um, but we've stepped away from the altar to this labor this morning, and it's kind of appropriate because Paul's actually going to talk about baptism in today's passage. Uh, but before we get there, I think we have to kind of review where we've been. I've warned you we're going to have to do this a lot in this book because this is a progressive book. Every thought builds on the last thought. Um, I think what I love about the tabernacle as an outline of this book is the fact that there are kind of clear delineations of how you progress through um, the, the tabernacle. So the, there's a line between the altar and the laver. Those are not the same thing. And I think this is important to remember that you can't stand at both in the same, at the same time. Um, you can't move to the laver and make sacrifices. You can't move to the laver if you're still dealing with um, the sacrifice. And you can't, um, make, uh, you can't clean up at the altar. Um, they don't go together. Um, which is metaphorically just a way of saying what I stressed heavily last week. 
that you have to have Romans 5 deep in your soul before you move on. Um, Paul declares kind of as a fact that we are at peace with God. That is done. The altar is done. The sacrifices are done. Jesus died for you. That's finished. Um, You can't continue to circle back to that sacrifice once you move on to the labor. You don't need to strive to work to please Him. The quest of our salvation, our relationship with God is firmly established. That's what Paul spends all of chapter 5 doing. Um, That is done. Nothing that we study from this point on affects that. This is a whole different thing. We're moving to the labor now. Paul doesn't say you are at peace with God as long as. That's nowhere in that chapter. He doesn't say you're at peace with God if. That's nowhere in that chapter. He doesn't say you're at peace with God unless. That's nowhere in that chapter. He says because of what Jesus did, you are at peace with God. Um, So we're going to um, get into some deeper waters this morning. This is where things get a little trickier, but you have to have Romans 5. None of this threatens or questions your peace with God. That's established. Um, so we'll be here for a few weeks in the deeper waters, and we're going to wrestle with some really important questions that I'm sure if you've been a Christian for long, um, you've heard, or you've heard, you've either asked yourself or heard someone else ask. I believe Paul heard it all, um, and he faces those questions head on, um, which I think is good. Um, I can almost promise you that none of the answers to these questions are going to be 100% satisfactory. Um, there's still a lot of tension here uh, as we as we go through these. This this is uh, especially if you don't absolutely recognize what happened in chapter 5. If, if you don't trust that you're at peace with God, there's a lot of tension in the next couple chapters. Um, in fact, let's put it in a word picture. Um, during the dinner that we commemorate on Monday Thursday uh, every year, Jesus demonstrates kind of servant leadership by washing His disciples' feet. Incidentally, this passage is one that non-Christian secular historians believe happened exactly like it was written. Um, because uh, uh, the gospel writers, there's no value in your leader washing feet in the first century. Servant leadership wasn't around back then. It wasn't a value. Jesus is the one who actually introduced that concept. That didn't come into existence until Jesus washes feet. So there's, there's no value to the disciples including this story. It, it, was, it does not help their case at all for trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God and the rightful King of David's throne. And so, when historians look at this, they can find no motive for, for why the disciples would have included this story other than it happened. Like, because they wouldn't have made this up to better their case, because this would hurt their case in the first century, that your leader washes feet. Nobody would have seen that as a benefit. And so, even secular historians say that this, prob- this night probably happened exactly like this, because it wouldn't have helped the disciples at all to just make it up. Um, so it does kind of two things. Number one, it shows that this kind of happened. And number two, it shows that the, that the disciples, when they were writing um, these accounts, um, weren't doing it to sell a, an agenda. They were recording what happened. Because if they were trying to sell an agenda, they would have cut this story. Because it would not have benefited. So it, it kind of lends some veracity to them, even as historians, because they, um, they chose, a, even if it hurt their case, so to speak, they still chose to record it. Um, but anyway, that was for free. Um, at, uh, uh, at this historically accurate dinner, Jesus takes the place of the lowest servant in the house. And here's how that reads. It says, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that His hour had come to leave this world and return to His Father. He had loved His disciples during His ministry on earth, and now He loved them to the very end. And it was time for supper. And the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. 
Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and returned to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water in a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. And Jesus said to, uh, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand uh, what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Peter, um, uh, so Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands, my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. And Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need um, to wash except for his feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. And he goes on to explain how the unclean one was signed with Judas Iscariot. Um, this is an exact picture of what's happening between, the di- between Romans 5 and Romans 6, the difference. Peter makes the mistake that I think we all make. He says, no, you will never wash my feet. Um, and I don't think Peter planned on laying down to dinner because that's what they did. They kind of laid around a low table. Um, uh, they didn't use chairs, which is kind of why it's so important to wash your feet because somebody's going to be laying on them or really close to them. So it's rude to lay down with dirty feet um, around the table. But I don't think Peter meant to lay down you know, with dirty feet. When he says Jesus can't wash him, I don't think that means he, he's going to leave his feet alone. It means he wants to wash his own feet. Like, I'd rather wash my own feet than, than have Jesus do it. Um, and then Jesus replies, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. And I think people read this wrong a lot of times. We tend to read that you, you're not saved if you have dirty feet. Like, he's saying, if I don't wash your feet, you're not with me. You're not saved. Um, and I think that's wrong because he already he says, like, in the very next sentence, that the disciples are already clean. Like, it would contradict what he says next. I think what he's actually saying is, um, we put the stress in the wrong place. We say, if I don't wash you, you're not with me. I think what he's saying is, if I don't wash you, you can't get clean. Like, who, who's going to do it? You? Like, because Jesus is talking beyond the feet washing. Like, he's basically saying um, what we said in Romans 1, 2, and 3. You can't cleanse yourself. You just can't. Um, we've all tried it. None of us can do it. And so Jesus is basically saying, if I'm not the one who does it, you got dirty feet because you can't do it yourself. Like this is this is an act of grace that I do, um, which I think is really powerful because we have a tendency to think that Jesus saves us, but then it's on us to do all the cleanup, and I don't think that's how it works. Jesus empowers us um, the same way um, to be cleaned as we as as He does to save us. I think what Jesus is saying um, is that He does that part too. He does the cleaning too, um, and we're going to actually get into that in Romans. Uh, and Peter's response to Jesus' declaration is what happens when you mix the altar and the labor. Uh, he says, let's wash everything. Um, wash my head, my hands. He wants to go back to the, the, the sacrifice and basically say that I need everything. And, and Jesus, um, and I honestly think he says this with kind of a chuckle. He says, a person who's bathed all over doesn't need to wash except for his feet. That's, so he's basically saying, you don't have to go back. And do the sacrifice all over again. You don't have to go get saved again. You don't have to do... There's no doubling back to the altar. We're at the labor. And that's a whole different process. Um, And the key part is this. He says, you are clean. You are. Yes, your feet are dirty. We're going to wash your feet. But you're cleansed. That part is done. We've moved on. Um, So this is kind of a word picture of what's happening. Basically, he's saying you you might need to double back to Romans 5 every once in a while just to remind yourself you're at peace with God over the next chapter, but that's done. No matter what comes next, you're at peace with God. No matter how much cleanup there is still to do, you're at peace with God. Or in Jesus' words, you're clean. He says you're clean. No matter what your feet look like, you're clean. No matter how badly you need a towel in the basin, you're clean. You're clean. Um, so, as we shift gears today and start the 
dealing with the sin that we still have, we have to remember that Romans 5 was established first. We are at peace with God before we start to clean up. God saves us as an act of His sheer grace on our behalf, and we carry that reality with us through the rest of the book. Now, for the next couple chapters, um, Paul kind of proves his genius. He basically answers four questions that naturally come to mind if you try to live in Romans 1-5. through If you try to live in an atmosphere of grace, believing that God saved you, um, that you're a hopelessly lost sinner um, that can't do anything to earn your own salvation, and you believe that God does it um, for you, then that's going to bring up some questions. Um, and, uh, and, and we've all heard them. Most of us have asked them. I've been teaching or preaching grace for basically 30 years. Um, and to this day, when I tell anyone um, that I believe salvation and holiness are gifts of grace given by, by Jesus and completely apart from following the rules, um, and these questions will come up. They will always come up. Number one, and these are the four questions Paul uh, asks in Romans 6 and 7. We're not going to get to all of them today, but the first one is, shall we keep on sinning so that we can receive grace? Um, shall we continue to sin so that we can receive grace? Paul has just established that God loves us so much, he sent Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners, while we were like his enemies he died for us. So the natural question is, um, if sin provoked God to do such crazy things and love us so much, um, is it a good idea to just allow ourselves to sin because it, it, it provoke, provokes grace on our behalf? It sounds crazy when you say it outright like that. Like it sounds like almost silly. Um, but have you ever done something knowing that that it's wrong and you're going to have to repent, but God's going to have grace on you. Like you do it knowing the grace is there. Um, uh, like you, it's, so it's not like I mess up and I blew it and I need help. It's like I know I'm about to mess up, but I also know God has grace. That's what Paul's saying here. He's basically saying, do we do we sin knowing it provokes grace, knowing that grace is there? Um, so so uh, so when we when we sin knowing grace is there. We're getting this question. This is what, what Paul is wrestling with. Paul confronts that question, and he answers it. We'll get into that in a bit. The second one, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can just go on sinning? This is a little different than the first question. The first question is, uh, do I break the rules because there's grace to cover me? This question is basically, do I just throw the law out the window? Since, since grace is here, does, does the law go? Are we free from all the rules? Do we just ignore what the Bible says because I've been freed from all that? Are the rules obsolete in this new environment of grace? Who's ever wrestled with that question? Anyone? You're just going to leave me up here by myself, right? Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Paul confronts that question. We're going to get into that. After this one, Paul gets a little more theological. Does grace mean that the law is bad? He asks that question. That one sounds funny in our heads, but... But we wrestle with it all the time. What Paul's basically saying is, is it either or? Is it good or bad? Is it law or grace? If, 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 if grace is good, does that mean law is bad? Do they contradict each other, in other words? Are we basically saying, I have to take this and turn away from this? Is it either or? Anyone ever gotten stuck in that dichotomy? Yeah, sometimes. Paul's going to confront that. And Paul's final question in this portion of the Bible is a variation of the last question. It was theologically a little deeper. 
Did the law cause our spiritual death? He asks. And this one gets pretty deep, but Paul's basically wrestling with this. Are God's standards too high? Are they why we're spiritually dead? Is the law the problem? And let me, let, let me tell you how this shows up, because this one's a little bit sneaky. Deeper thinkers might ask a question, um, why would God create um, a creature and then make rules that the creature can't keep? You ever heard anybody wrestle with that question? Yeah, that's what Paul's saying here. Is the law the problem? Are the, are the, is, did, did God do this on purpose? But the real way it shows up in everybody's lives is, is you ever said, yeah, it's just human though. Like we blow it and you're like, eh, I'm just, that's just human. Everybody's selfish. Like we, we excuse like, like uh, a lot of things we do. Um, you do something sinful and you're like, yeah, but being selfish is human. We all do it. We, ha- we have to succeed and you've got to be a little selfish to do that. Or how about this one? Uh, it wasn't my fault. I couldn't help it. Like we say that all the time. Or this one. Um, I can I can see why that was a big deal back then, but the law doesn't make any lot that law doesn't make any logical sense anymore. Um, you know, we've moved on. What all those questions are really asking is: Is the problem with the law? Is the problem with the rules? Is 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 it the is it the standards themselves? Is the strictness or weirdness or outdatedness of the law the real problem? In other words, I'm not actually a sinner because there's something wrong with me. I'm a sinner because God's law is unrealistic. It doesn't fit into my modern world. I can't, I can't keep those things and live a normal life. I have to live. Like, we run into this one all the time. This was actually deeply rooted in, in all human society. We keep trying to come up with the perfect system, right? If we can just find the right economic system, the right political system, the right governmental system, the right educational system, always hoping if we can find the right system, all the pain and hate and fear and anxiety and stress in life will finally go away. If we can just get things set up right, get the right person in office, then everything will be fixed. Like we have this feeling that, that surely we're not the problem. Surely there's a way to set it up just right and, and things will be fixed. And, and God did that. He created a people out of Abraham and he set it up just right. And they still blew it. They still messed up. Like there was, there is no, um, the problem isn't the law. The problem is us. And Paul's going to confront that question. So this section is divided by these huge questions that naturally come up in a grace environment. And that distinction is really important here because these aren't questions you answer when you're living under law. You don't even ask these questions. You just obey the law. And when you don't, you, you blew it. But it's only when you're trying to figure out how you live in a grace environment without law that these questions come up. Like, okay, well, if that's the case, then how do you do this? How do you do that? How do you wrestle with this? And that's what Paul does in this section. So you only question the purpose and application of the law when you... When you go through chapter 5, I'm at peace with God. I'm at peace with God, then what do I do with all this other stuff? If I'm at peace with God, then fill in the blank. And the way that Paul dives into the first question, which is the only one we're going to treat with today, um, reveals a huge principle of Scripture that I think um, we need to wrestle with today. Uh, so we're just going to do uh, verses, the first 11 verses of chapter 6. But it says, well then, should we keep on sinning that God can show more and more of His wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when you joined with Christ in baptism, you joined Him in His death? 
For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by his glorious power, by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we've been united with him in death, we are also raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ, so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Uh, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So we also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of that gets a little deep, a little deep language there. Um, but the way Paul deals with this um, question, really all these questions and a lot of the stuff he wrote is in what we call an indicative imperative argument, um, which basically means this. This is what is and here's what you do. The indicative is this is the truth. The imperative is this is what you do. Honestly, the structure of my sermons um, follows this. I think I've kind of hung on to it every, ever since I learned about it in some seminary class or another. Um, but it's basically, this is what the Bible says. How do I respond to that? Um, because I never want to, to hear an indicative, this is what is true, um, without asking about the imperative. So what do I do with that? What does that mean to me? I don't ever want to study the Scripture just to get smarter or just to win a debate or just to have something to teach or preach. Every time I get into the text, I want to say, okay, God, what do I do with this? How do I respond to that? What's the imperative? I now read the indicative. What's the imperative? When Paul does, uh, uh, Paul does that in the opening of this chapter, and like I say, in most of his writings, but in this passage, it's especially good. And I think it's what God really wants us to wrestle with this morning. And the whole thing hinges on one word. It says, but now, this is verse 11, but now that uh, he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead. This is, uh, I learned this word is reckon, reckon yourselves to be dead back when I learned it in the New King James. Um, but the Greek word is logizame, uh, logizame. That's a Greek word. You can see the, the English um, words that come off of that. Logic, logistics, logizame. The direct translation means to be, to take inventory of or to account for. This is actually an accounting word in Greek. To bring both sides into balance. Lagadzame. So in the indicative imperative form, what Paul is saying is, here's the way things are. Your job, your imperative, is to believe that. To account your reality to that reality. To reckon it. To make your perception of reality agree with that. Now, this is a really interesting word choice here, because this is not the word pistis. We've talked a couple of weeks ago about the word pistis, which is the word that... Uh, the Bible usually uses for faith or belief. When it says believe in Jesus, it's the word pistis. Not the word lagadzame. Not like believe up here, but like believe down here. They're two totally different words. <clears throat> pistis is that word we talked about that's steeped in relationship and commitment. And if you missed that a couple weeks ago, I recommend going back to that recording. Um, but the Bible uses the word pistis every time it speaks of faith in God or believing in Jesus. But here Paul uses lagadzame. And Lagadzame is way closer to what we think of oftentimes when we say believe. Like believing that Abraham Lincoln is the 16th president. That's Lagadzame. The history books say it. I don't see a problem with it. I believe it. Like that's Lagadzame. That's accounting my reality. I agree with it. That's, that, I, I see that as true. That's a true statement. 
And Paul is really fond of this word in Romans. He's already used it 12 times by the time he uses it here. Um, and just so you can see that it's different than like faith, he says, since you judge others uh, for doing the same things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment? Why do you logizame? Why do you calculate, reason out, or, or, or think in your mind? He says, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith. We logizame. We, we, we rationalize. We, we think. And I could go on and on and on. But this is a different kind of believing. This isn't commitment believing. This is agreement believing. This is not the kind that we're, that we're asked to believe in Jesus. We're asked to have pistis in Jesus, which is all-in, relational, faithfulness type of thing. That doesn't mean there's not a place for also mentally agreeing with what God says. According to Paul here, the entire argument of how you start cleaning up your lives... Uh, begins with mentally agreeing that what God says is true. That's step number one. God says this is true. I logizame that. I believe that. I agree with that. I think this is the principle we need to get back to in our world today because as we get smarter and smarter and smarter and more and more advanced, we just keep getting dumber. It seems to me that the more we discover and honestly face up to scientifically with honest science, the more it proves that the Bible is, is, is honest and true. And there comes a point that I feel like we need to just draw a line in the sand and say, um, this, God's Word, is the standard in my life. That is what defines truth. God said it. I log it. it that settles it. You can see the bumper sticker. God said it. I believe it. Yeah. God said it. I log it. it that settles it. Let me get a t-shirt that says that. And, you know, I said that we keep... We need this today. But the truth is the, the, the story of humanity uh, is really a fight over reality. It's really a fight over what is true, what is real. The idea of agreeing with God has always come, to the, the, come from the core of Satan's attack on, on humans. God makes humans in his own image to be like him. He says, I'm, I'm going to make them like me. And Satan comes along and says, do you want to be like God? You know what Eve doesn't say? Hold on a second. I'm already like God. He already said he made me in his image. Satan doesn't say that. Satan comes with a whole different reality. If you want to be like God, you have to do something. Eat this fruit. At its core, Eve doesn't believe that God is telling the truth, that his reality is true. His reality says, I'm already like God. I don't have to eat anything to be like God. He made me in his image. Satan comes with a different reality. God says, uh, you know, the truth is you're like me. Satan says, no, that's not the truth. You need more. Which is real. Which is reality. How do you know which is true? God says, the truth is, if you eat this, you'll die. What does Satan say? No, if you eat that, you won't die. He comes with a different reality, a different truth. Which one's real? Which one's true? If you eat that, you'll be like God. That's a whole different reality. The fight has always been over reality. It's always been over truth. What is true? I know this seems rudimentary, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway, because I like to over-explain things. Um, But lies don't come with a label. I mean, some do. Like when your kid's stealing, a, like getting a cookie, and you're like, "What are you doing? I was getting a cookie for you." That one comes labeled. Like you know, that one's all, that one's a lie. Like that one's pretty easy. But the real lies, the deep lies, don't come with a label that tell you it's a lie. The good lies come counterfeit. You ever watch? <laughs> Got to make sure I say this. Right, Pawn Stars. You ever watch Pawn Stars? <laughs> be careful. The people come in like ready to sell King Arthur's sword for like $200 million and 
So they call in the expert, and the guy comes and tells you everything there is to know about Excalibur. And, and then he finds this little notch in the, in the hilt. He's like, oh, no, this is a forgery made in Illinois in 1970. They made it for a Renaissance fair. You know, blah, blah, blah. You know, fakes don't come with a big sign on it. And you can always tell the person is, like, crushed. Oh, man, I thought I really had Jimi Hendrix's guitar. What are the chances? Like, you know. But fakes don't come with a big sign on it. Like, fake. Artificial. Fake swords, fake purses, fake money, fake realities. They don't come labeled. I was taught in Bible college that when they train people to recognize counterfeit money, they don't give them like the ten best counterfeits and show them like where they're off. They give them the real thing. and They tell them to study it so hard and know everything about it so that the counterfeit presents itself. Like it, it's obvious. You know the real thing so well that the, that the counterfeit just shows up. And that's what Paul is suggesting here. Hear the truth from God's Word. And know it so well that you align your very reality to it. He introduces this word into our lives as our responsibility. Your job, your imperative is lagadzame. To align your reality to this reality. God says it's true. And for about ten verses, He said, this is what is. This is what is true. You are dead to sin. We hear God's word. No matter what Satan offers as an alternative reality... And believe me, when they come, they look convincing. They look like the real thing. But no matter what alternative reality we're offered, we choose to align our minds, our hearts, our souls to the very reality that God gives us. As we, as we step up to what it means to clean up our lives and to deal with the sin that's in our lives after God has graciously saved us, Paul says we begin by aligning our reality to the simple truth. And the simple truth is this. He says, well, should we keep sinning so that God can show us more and more of His wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? This is Paul's primary argument for this entire section. For the next two chapters, this is the root of the whole argument. We are dead to sin. He makes it several different ways, and he's going to use this idea as death of death to inform most of the metaphors he uses, he uses like in marriage, if somebody dies, you're no longer committed to that person. You're allowed to be free because they die. Like he's going to use this death metaphor over and over and over again in the next two chapters. Spoiler alert, he gets all the way to chapter 7 when he has his like breakdown. And the way he words it is, what am I going to do with this dead body I keep dragging around with me? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I've got this dead thing that died with Christ and I'm still dragging it around. What do I do with this dead body? This idea of being dead to sin is what informs both these chapters. Like it's, it's over and over and over again. The basic statement of truth is that we were alive as sinners. Sinners who are bound under the original promise to Adam and Eve that when you sin, you will die. As we talked two weeks ago, God being just can't just ignore that covenant. He can't just go, ah, never mind. I'm not going to kill you. You're fine. He has to make good on His Word. So we owe a death. And Paul's thesis is that 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 death happened in Jesus on the cross. You didn't just get set free like some random pardon. No, the debt was actually paid in full. The death you owed was paid, which means you died. The death happened. That sinner who owed a death died. And this informs the idea of being born again. When talking to Nicodemus, Jesus used the phrase, you must be born again. 
And, but that idea, even though he doesn't use that language, is reinforced here. Paul's saying, we died with Jesus on the cross. And we rose, born again, to new life with Jesus. Paul, Paul reminds them that that's exactly what baptism is saying. Or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined Him in His death. And we died. And we were buried with Christ in baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we're raised to new lives. For the majority of church history, that's the way you would be born again. The, the way you would decide that you were all in, the way that you would join the body of Christ, basically get saved, is you would get baptized. In more recent years, evangelicals have grown accustomed to praying a prayer or asking Jesus to be their Savior. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing or that it's invalid or anything. But it wasn't how people in the Bible got saved, if, if you want to call it that. In the Bible, um, they got baptized. And, and maybe the biggest loss here is that praying the sinner's prayer doesn't come with this built-in metaphor for what exactly is taking place in this moment when you put your faith in Jesus, which is death and new birth. Like, so, so when we pray a sinner's prayer, it doesn't come with this built-in metaphor. And if Paul is right here in chapter 6, that metaphor is really important. A lot of our faith is hinged on it. When we put our faith in Jesus, we die and are born again. The old us is dead. And yes, our, our old selves can be pretty lively for being dead. And Paul's going to wrestle with that. That's, that's what the next couple chapters are about. But our old nature is dead. And our job, our imperative, that's the indicative. Our imperative is to lugetzame that. To believe that. To agree with that. To align our reality to that. Now, just for fun, we're going to dip our toes into some of the deep theological waters that are here, but like just a bit. We're not going to go. We're not going to go a lot. We're just going to we're going to play with it a little bit. Um, but Paul continues after this kind of baptism metaphor. He says, since we've been united with him in death, we are also raised to life as he was. We know our sinful uh, selves were crucified with Christ. They're dead. So that sin might lose it. So that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have died with Christ. We are set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with Him. We are sure of this. Christ was raised from the dead. And He will never die again. Death no longer has any power over Him. When He died, He died once to break the power of sin. But now He lives. He lives for the glory of God. Okay. I delivered all 16 of my kids. Not everyone knows that. Um, and the way it happened is, is kind of funny. But the short version is my wife made me do it. I didn't even have much to say. Um, she always wanted to have home births, um, and I always wanted to pass out cigars in a waiting room, like every TV show I had ever seen. Um, and she won. So, um, which is weird, because until my oldest was born, I could not watch a birth on video. Like, made me gag. Like, does not seem natural. It seems like there's nothing natural going on there. It, it is, um, I, I literally couldn't even watch it. Um, and uh, Which is weird, because it turns out I'm pretty good at delivering babies. You just have to muscle through the gag reflex. Um, but uh, <laughs> I bring that up because sometimes theology can be that way. Um, we love the byproduct, right? We love the babies that come from birth. That doesn't mean we want to watch it happen, right? Sometimes theology is like that. We, we love the concepts, but the nitty-gritty can get a little heavy um, at times. It seem a little technical and undramatic when you break it down. But at the risk of, of being too up close and personal, we're going to do that just a little bit here. Because um, Paul says we died with Christ, Right? Um, and we also rose with him to new life. And this is important because of this. It says, we are sure this because Christ was raised from the dead. He will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. 
He died. He died once to break the power of sin. But now he lives. He lives in the glory of God. So Jesus died for us, rose again, defeating death. And he won't die again. Death is no longer in the story. Now, according to Paul, when we're baptized, we also die with Christ and rise, defeating death. And here's where this gets a little technical. How did sin enter the world? God said, if you eat this fruit, you will die. So, so the very first sin is defined as well as the consequence. Right off the bat. If you eat, you will die. If you disobey, you will die. If you sin, you will die. So the first sin is defined and its consequence. They both show up together and that's very important. And when Moses further defines sin, it's still the ultimate consequence is death. Nothing really changes. Now, and this is where we're going to, I don't want to get bogged down, um, but if you want to dig into this deeper later, grab a friend and dig into this because it's, it's fun. But, uh, but here's the main point. You cannot threaten a dead guy with death. Once you've died, what's the threat? Once you've died, what power does the if you eat this, you will die have? You can't threaten a dead guy with death. The entire covenantal part of the sin, the very first commandment, don't eat that fruit. If you sin, you owe a spiritual death. That's the whole thing. That's the deal. If you sin, you have to die. Well, we sinned and we paid our spiritual death on the cross. So what power does that commandment have anymore? Jesus on the cross uh, and and the the sacrament of baptism established it. So Paul's going to make all kinds of arguments on why the law, which is still... The, 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 the righteous standard of God, that has not changed at all. It's still absolutely the right standard of God. But he's going to make several arguments over why that has no power over us. And for us to understand and grasp any of those arguments, we have to realize that in Jesus, as demonstrated in baptism, we already paid our end of that covenant. We had a covenant with God. If you break the contract, you die. We broke the contract, we died. That's paid. It's done. The covenant, that covenant is done. So now what? And that's the question Paul answers in the next couple chapters. If you don't get that, that I don't live under that promise anymore, I fulfilled it in Christ, that if you sin, you will die. I sinned, I died. That one's done. And the answer to that question um, of what next is what Paul's going to do. But our job today according to Paul, is to believe, to agree with, to lagadzame that reality. Shall we keep on sinning so that we can receive grace? Paul answers, no. The you who is defined by sin, the you who is defined by that covenant, the sin and the respective consequence is dead. You don't live under that reality anymore. Those old definitions no longer apply. Or in Paul's words, of course not. Since you've been, since you've died to sin, how can you live any longer in it? Okay, so how do we respond to this? We're kind of leaving it hanging today because I can't cover two chapters in one week, and so you have to come back next week. Um, how do we respond to this? First, if you haven't been water baptized, I encourage you to do that. Um, it, it's important. It really is. Um, when I try to imagine a member of the church at Rome li- reading this letter of Paul's for the first time, where his greatest defense for this thesis is based on the absolute assumption that everybody he's talking to has been baptized. He's basically like, I mean, look at your own baptism. Like, he's just assuming 
everybody who's going to read this letter has been baptized. And he's like, and that's his greatest like argument is like the baptism you went through, we all went through. It tells the story. We died and we rose, raised. So if you haven't been baptized, um, please let me know. We'd love to schedule a baptism service. I think we're looking at toward the end of July. Um, but, you know, please let me know. Or if you were baptized as a child and, and you want to confirm that baptism, um, we would love to do that. Um, so, um, so, yeah, if you haven't been baptized, please let me know. and We'll get that scheduled. But the second way that I would love to respond to this message is to spend some time this week thinking. Like, get up in your head. This is for the, for the logical, rational people. You'll love this one. Because um, Paul gave us this word, logizame. It, and it's up in the brains. It's not down in the guts where faith, like the faith, pistis faith is. This is up in the head. This is up in the brain. So I'd love to spend some time this week really facing the reality that Jesus paid our debt. Our sin, our death has happened. What does that change in your reality? What changes if you were to believe that? If you were to agree with that? If you were to logizame that and say, I believe what Paul said. I agree with what Paul said. He said that I have paid that debt. I do not have a debt to owe that one. There's like a bumper sticker that says something like, um, born twice, die once, or die twice, born once. Um, every time I see it, I'm like, that's not true, because you still have to die twice, either on the cross and then your physical death, or like you still die. Like we, we had a spiritual death. Like ours, we just didn't have to pay it. Like those who don't put their faith in Jesus will actually have to pay their spiritual death themselves. We don't have to because Jesus paid it for us. But it had to happen. It's still that debt had to be paid. That death had to happen. We didn't get away without that death. That death was not like forgotten about or just you know erased. It had to it had to happen. And that's what Jesus did for us. Was he died for us? That's what that means. It doesn't just like mean you know it's not just a religious term. It means that death had to happen. He did it for us. So I'd love to spend some time facing the reality that Jesus paid our death, the death we owed. What does it mean that you don't owe that anymore? What does that change? What does that change in your reality if you decide to agree that Paul is right and that you don't, um, the, the part of you that is bound in that contract is dead, no longer there? God didn't say, if you eat it, you'll die. If you, if you sin, you'll die. And then if you sin again, you'll die again. And then if you keep on sinning, you'll just keep adding death. No, he said, once you sin, you owe a death. That death has happened. If we put our faith in Jesus, he died that death for us. So this week, do what Paul told you to do. Line up your thoughts with God's reality. And when the enemy slips in with all the yeah buts, because the enemy will come in with, ah, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Fight against that. Say, God said it. I log it, zame it. That settles it. It's our job to believe that. That's our imperative.